Father, we thank you for this beautiful day, and we thank you for the time we have to come out and show up in your word, to look at the things of your word, to study you. pray that you would open our hearts, help us to ponder and understand what is, what is being taught today, and I pray the Holy Spirit would give us insight. Thank you again, Father, for being here with us and for, for loving us so much that you sent your Son to give us his life for, so we could be redeemed. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Um, today, we're going to be talking about types of Christ, types. Um, and uh, next week we're going to be looking, we're going to do a, a sort of a 20,000 foot um, study of the second coming, because we're going to really hit that deeply when we go and study the doctrine of last things, but we're going to at least get, a, get a, a high level view of the fact that Christ is coming again, literally, physically, bodily, to reign. But um, today we're going to look at the types of Christ. And what what we need to ask right after the bat is, what is a type? A type. Has anybody ever heard this term used before? Types. Okay. Um, probably do it in um, precepts. All right. Talk about types. Um, those of you who are really old and have taken the Schofield Bible course, they of course talk quite a bit about this in there. And basically, what a type is, it's it's defined as a relationship between a person, event, or a thing in the Old Testament with a person, event, or thing in the New Testament. The person, event, or thing in the Old Testament is defined as the type, and the thing in the New Testament is the anti-type or archetype. Sometimes they use archetype to talk about that, or the anti-type. And we're going to look at four of these in relation to Christ and see what the Scripture has to say about about them. But now, this this, uh, type, it can be any one of these things, a person, event, or a thing. All right? It can be any one of those. Um, for example, in, in, when we study eschatology, there's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes in the history that is a type of Antichrist. So by looking at what Antiochus uh, Epiphanes did in history, gives us an idea of what Antichrist is going to do in the future. And that's a type. All right? Think of a type as a metaphor, possibly. As a metaphor as an example, to give you some insight into something in the New Testament. All right? Now, when we talk about types, we need to, to, to think of, and, and, you know, it depends on what, uh, you know, what Bible study course you take, or, or there's different views on this, but I'm going to give you what I think is a, is a balanced view. There's a lot of things that are considered types in the Bible, but you have to be careful not to make everything a type. Alright? Not everything in the Old Testament is a type of something in the New Testament. Um, I was reading a, a chart, you go out on the internet and get this, um, charts of what some people think types are, and for example, some say that uh, uh, Joshua is a type of Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ. I mean, they just go on and on and on of things that are, that are types in the Old Testament that supposedly have an anti-type in the new. We have to be careful when we go there. Because if you don't, if you're not careful, you can make everything a type. And not everything is a type. Not everything in the Old Testament prefigures something in the new. But the Bible certainly brings out that there are some that are very definitely defined as such in the scripture. And those are the things that we can look at. There are some defined ones. Others, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful with them. And I'll, we'll see this as we go along. 
the, the way the Bible uses types is they're, they're used to prefigure or provide a picture of something that will be more fully explained or understood in the fullness of Revelation. All right. For example, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, that was a type of Christ's sacrifice in the New. All right. As you look at the Old Testament sacrifices, you get an understanding of what Christ's sacrifice is going to be like. It's not a clear picture, but it gives you an understanding. It's sort of like a stick figure drawing of what is coming. All right. The tabernacle. If you study Hebrews, you find that the tabernacle given to Moses, it's interesting as you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, God gave them specific instructions as to dimensions, as to things that are to be in there, things that are not to be in there, how it was to be constructed, what it was to be constructed with. And as you look at Hebrews, you find that the tabernacle that the Israelites had in the Old Testament is a type of the true tabernacle in heaven. In fact, if we were to die right now and go to heaven, we would see something that looks like a tabernacle there. And how do you know that? Well, read the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, for example, you have the sea of glass before the throne. Well, what is that sort of a picture of? We've got the bronze sea. All right. Um, you, there, it says there's an altar of incense in heaven. How do you know that? Well, that's where the souls of the martyrs, remember, in, in Revelation 5, are under the altar. Well, what do you have in the tabernacle? You had an altar of incense in the tabernacle. Um, in the book of Revelation, you see the bowl judgments. What are those? Those are large censer bowls. What do you have in the tabernacle? You had censers that were used. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the opposite. In this case, it's the fulfillment. The type is in the old. The anti-type is in the new. Yeah, they're synonyms. And it depends on what book you pick up or what study you pick up, whether it's an archetype or an anti-type. But don't think of anti as against in this case. Think of it as instead of. You've got your type in the old. You've got your anti-type in the new. Censer is a large, shallow bowl. It was used in the temple. It was, you know, probably about that big around and, and shallow. And they used it to put hot coals in. And uh, what would happen is the priest would take hot coals from the altar and they would put incense in here and the smoke would go up on the Day of Atonement. They would use that to have the smoke go up, which are the, symbolize the prayer of the saints. And what do you have in heaven? The souls under the altar making prayers. So you see the, the similarity there. Um, you also have the, before the throne of God, it says there are seven um, burning, like, pots. Well, what do you have in the tabernacle? You have the candelabra, the menorah, with the seven-branched candlestick. Um, the one thing you don't see in heaven, though, that you had in the, uh, the uh, tabernacles, you don't have an altar. You don't have the bronze altar. And why is that? Don't need it. Not in heaven. That was for here. You don't need it in heaven. And in fact, in Hebrews, it says Christ took his own blood into the holy of holies in heaven. Well, that represents or is pictured by the holy of holies on the earth. And in fact, um, in the holy of holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant and you had the cherubim over that. Remember the, two, the cherubim with their wings outspread. And what do you have in heaven around the throne of God? The cherubim that circle and say, holy, holy, holy. And in fact, 
on the on top of the tabernacle. That's where the Shekinah glory dwelled, on top of the ark, between the outstretched wings of the cherubim. And what do you see in heaven? The glory of God on the throne. He is surrounded by the cherubim. One of them. <laughs> um, seraphim, cherubim. i got to remember that because she'll get me on that every time. All right? But God's throne is protected by these angelic beings crying, holy, holy, holy. And you see that. So the tabernacle is a type. It is a type of the true tabernacle in heaven. It gives you an idea of what it is like. Okay? And God uses types to give a shadow or picture before he's ready to reveal the real thing. Okay? Now, some rules for using types. And this is, this is me with these rules here. I use this in a class on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for how do you interpret the scripture. That's all it is. It comes from the Greek word hermeneo to interpret. And hermeneutics, all that is, is how do you interpret the Bible. All right? And uh, I came up with uh, these rules here. These are helpful. Do not treat something as a type unless the New Testament specifically identifies it as such. Don't go and type the entire Bible. All right? Because if you do, you're going to wind up teaching weird things. All right? Don't, don't go there. If, if, if the New Testament shows it as being a type, go with that. But don't make everything a type. When you do find a type, identify the common characteristics of the type of the antitype. Not everything is a one-to-one correspondence. Okay? What I mean by that is, we're going to look at the first one here. Christ is the Passover lamb. But not everything in the Passover is, is, can be seen in what Christ did on the cross. Not every single thing. Generally, yeah, it, it is a picture. But not every specific detail is found in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Okay? So you identify the common characteristics, but not every single detail is necessarily part of that. And we'll explain that. We'll see that as we go along. And, and don't, don't extend it beyond the common characteristics. There, when you do parables, this is another thing. When you do parables, when you study parables, parables have a, a, a central point. All parables have one central point that they're trying to make. And the problem that some people get into is they want to take a parable and they make every single element of the parable picture something. It's not necessarily true. Um, Christ said uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took uh, leaven and hid it in three measures of meal until the whole was leaven. And people wax on about, well, who's the woman? What is the woman picture? Is the woman God? Yada, 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 yada. That's not what the parable is trying to say. The parable is trying to say the kingdom of God has influence. That's all it's trying to say. It, it doesn't take a lot of leaven to infect three measures. Three measures is a lot of meal. You just got to put a little bit in there, and it'll grow and permeate the entire mass. And that's what Christ is trying to say. He's talking about the influence of the kingdom. He's not trying to say we got to figure out well what is the meal. The meal must be the church. The meal must be the world. Christ is the woman. You can go on and on and on and, and miss the whole point of what Christ is saying is that the kingdom has influence. No. No, it does not. I do not believe it does. I think leaven pictures influence. 
the influence is determined by the context. It could be evil. It could be just influence. You know, because Christ says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. All right, now, if you say leaven is sin, what is the kingdom of heaven like? That sort of files that up, right? So I don't think that's what it means. I think leaven, in the Bible, leaven is a picture of influence. And contextually, you define whether it's a good influence or a bad influence. Most of the times, it's bad. It's influence. I mean, you know, and everybody would have known it back then. You know, you take a little tiny bit of leaven and you put it in your meal and boom, and the whole thing's leaven. Everybody understood that metaphor. They understood what you were talking about. So don't, yeah, that's a good point, though, because people try to say, well, leaven depicts sin. No, it depicts influence. Contextually, you'll find out whether it's sin or not. Like Christ said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and scribes. Well, in that case, it's evil influence. Um, Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, in that case, it's evil. But when Christ says the kingdom of God is like leaven, in that case, it's a good influence. All right? Starts out small, influences a lot. Um, and here's the final one. Don't teach doctrine from types. They're, they're not there to teach you doctrine. They're there to give you an illustration. That's all they are. It's an illustration. It's an illustration to help you get an understanding or a clarification or another dimension of a truth. But it's not to teach you truth. All right? It's not to teach it. It's not to teach doctrine. So don't get there. Because then you wind up with a lot of weird, weird things. So let's look at um, the first great type when we talk about Antichrist, or not Antichrist, Christ. And that is Christ and the Passover. We talk about the Passover. And relevant passages here really are Exodus 12 and Hebrews 9 through 10. But let's look at Exodus 12, um, where, where God institutes the, uh, the Passover. All right. I'm going to just read this and comment as we go along because this is important to understand. Um, which what, this, this original Passover. This is when God instituted it. In chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year for you. So what does God just do right there? Redefines the calendar. This is month one now. Okay? Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So on the day ten, ten days into this month, you're to go get a lamb, one for every household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall take, she shall make your count for the lamb. So, you know, if you only have two or three people in a household, that's a little bit small to eat an entire lamb. So go with your neighbors. Share. All right? And then it says here, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So you took this lamb, and you had to check it over, right? And what did it have to be? Without blemish. You know, the idea is, oh, I got one, you know, it's got some broken leg, we'll use it. You know, it's not good for anything else. No, and, and this is, by the way, just as an aside, this is the point that God makes. He doesn't want your leftovers, he wants your best. He doesn't, yeah, he wants the best. Um, and God says, you, may, you check it over, make sure it's without blemish. It's interesting, in, in Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, God 
condemns Israel. He says, because, you know, when you come and bring the offerings, you're bringing the sick, and you're bringing the maimed, and you're bringing the, the weak. He said, you, he said, in fact, you're sacrificing things to me. You wouldn't feed your own governor. You know, that's sort of interesting to think about it, but they had fallen in to give him God the second or third best. God says, I want the best. And that lamb had to be with them for at least three days, and then it was killed at twilight. All right? Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So within the house, you have the doorpost and the lintel, the top piece. Yeah? Yes. Right. So that's why you have to be careful not to take every single point all the way through. Every single point is not that, that you get in trouble if you do that. Okay, and that's a good point. Um, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, while Christ wasn't cannibalized. All right, so that breaks down there. Although he did offer his flesh. He offered his flesh symbolically, yes, but he was not physically eaten. All right. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, shall they eat it. Unleavened bread. Now, you say, well, why unleavened bread? Okay. Well, what are they going to do very soon? Leave. All right. Well, number one, they didn't have time to wait for it to rise. That's important. But two, if they have leavened bread, where does the leaven come from? piece of other bread, right? That's what happened in those days. You'd batch, make a batch of bread and you keep a little piece aside so you'd have it use it for the next batch, all right? Yeah, sort of like yogurt, all right? So if you have leavened bread as you leave Egypt, where did the leaven in that leavened bread come from? From the old things. And God's saying, you start over. There's a, there's a clear break from what you had in Egypt to what you had in the Promised Land. Start over, and by having unleavened bread, that means you're not bringing over anything from Egypt. That was, the, that was a picture. And that right there is a direct example of hermeneutics. Because hermeneutics is not just a, a study of them, but it's within the context of yes. the culture. And I'm automatically thinking, yeast, giant eagles, they didn't have that. No, they did not have giant eagle in those days, or giant Moses, or whatever they would go do their shopping. They, they got it. Yeah, and and in fact, it's interesting in the culture of that day when a young woman got married, her mother would give her as a wedding present some yeast to start her own bread because the women women in those days they made the bread, and that was a symbol of blessing from the mother to the daughter as she started her new family, that she would get a piece of bread, or a piece of leaven from her mom to start the, the new bread. So anyways, they, they ate it with unleavened bread, and said to do not any, eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. He had to roast it over the fire, its head, legs, and inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. So any leftovers, you burn it. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. What's he trying to get across there? Eat it quickly. Because you're going to be what? Leaving. Leaving. All right. Don't have time to wait for the bread to rise. You know, let's get it in the oven. Let's get it out. Let's go. You know. Yeah, that's the... (laughs) 
This was, yeah. Never thought about that. You know, McDonald's was all the way back then, you know. Yeah, man. Yikes. Because in verse 12, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over. That's where you get Passover. I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses for anyone who eats what is leavened from that first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from his people. Excommunicated, killed. What's God trying to do? You make a clean break with the old. And for seven days you're to eat unleavened bread to, to signify your break from Egypt. Um, on the first day you shall hold a, a holy assembly and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, they alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. So the Passover started the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. I think he's trying to make a point. Repeats himself like five times. Then Moses called the elders of the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it on the, in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts of the house that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the house, door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he's promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And then, of course, we have the, the plague, the tenth plague, where God strikes the Egyptians. And I love that Cecil B. the Mill movie, you know, where you see the, what are the mist coming down and it's sort of eerie, you know. Yeah, and he did a good job there, you know. They said he used jello for the red seed, you know that? Yeah. He used jello. So it's, it's better than just eating, it could be a movie prop. Um, and uh, in verse 49, in verse 43 there, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is brought from money shall may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. 
then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And that very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Here's the Passover. God is instituting a solemn um, service, ritual, whatever. And notice what, what is going on here. You take a lamb, you got to check it over to be without blemish. And why do you keep it in the house for four days or three days? Well, you got to you got to look at it. And what are the kids going to do? Yeah, you know, lambs are really pretty. You know, little little baby ones. You know, they're sort of sweet and cuddly and all that. And think of the shock when you take that lamb and you kill it. And by the way, in those days, you didn't take the lamb out, you know, out behind the woodshed and kill it and come back with the lamb. Everybody stood around while you did it. The kids and all. And you took a basin and you would cut the throat of the lamb and the blood would just gush out into that basin. And of course, white wool and red blood don't mix very well. And it would be a shock for the kids to see that. I'm freaking people out already. All right. Yeah. Well, see, and, and see, here's the thing. We are so far removed from that. It's sanitized. You know, when, when I want a steak, I go to the grocery store. I don't go out and pick out the cow, you know. I go to the grocery store. When I want chicken, I don't go out to the barnyard and wring its neck and I go, I go get Purdue, you know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when, when, when God showed up, when, when Christ and the two angels showed up at Abraham's house, what did he do? He didn't run down to Kroger and get a steak. He went out and killed a calf and cooked it. Sarah cooked it, you know. That's the way he did it. And, and we are so far removed from that. We're so, we're so sanitized from that. That when we read in the Bible, you know, that Christ shed his blood for us, we don't, we don't relate to this. He's done very well in the ministry and, and so on, but he announced from the pulpit a few years ago that he was no longer going to preach about the blood because it was expensive. It's supposed to be. Yeah. But it's like that's the point. They're so removed from the reality. Mm-hmm. There, there are churches. Yeah. Are, are 
There are hymns, they take hymns out of the hymn book, you know, nothing but the blood. Oh, we don't want that one. Well, let me tell you something. You know, the Bible says very clearly, Christ shed his blood as a bloody sacrifice. Christ, Mel Gibson didn't even do it justice. He got about as close as you're going to get, but even he didn't get it all the way there. It was a mess. And, and in Revelation, it talks about a lamb having been slain. When John saw the lamb having been slain, what's he talking about? It's not, you know, a dead, cuddly, little, fluffy, white thing. It's got blood all over it. We don't like to think of that. And yet Christ shed his blood for us as a bloody sacrifice. And, and the Israelite sacrifices were bloody. Grossly bloody. If we were to show up there, we'd be grossed out to see this. But what is God trying to picture? Sin is messy. It's bad. It's so bad that I have to do... Think of poor old Adam and Eve, you know, when, when they walk up to God in their fig leaves, and God says, well, those won't do. And he takes an animal and he slaughters it in front of them. They had never seen that. Think of the shock that they had. They probably didn't go over that for months. And God's making a point. It's bloody. It's messy. It's, we have a, people say, we don't like to preach the slaughterhouse religion. Well, look, folks, it is a slaughterhouse religion. By the way, it's Christ's blood and death that provide our redemption. His death as a sacrifice for us. It's not his physical fluid. It's the death that he paid with his precious blood as of a lamb slain. And we, 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 we can't get so distant from that picture that we don't understand that. And, and one thing that's always taught, which I would say now, Genesis 3.15 is always taught as the first depiction of the, the atonement, the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's really not correct. The first depiction is the one you just mentioned where God kills the animal as the blood sacrifice. The first promise of the Redeemer is 315. But, but... The, the, the death of the animal. And remember, what does it say? It says in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Folks, if, if you want your sins forgiven, you're going to have to go with the blood. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. You may not like it. You may be grossed out by it. It may not make you feel good. But look, that's the way it is. Because what is the blood sim- of, of what is the blood in the Bible symbolize? What does it symbolize? Life. For me to be forgiven, something had to die. For me to have my sins covered, something had to pay the price. And it could either be me, or it could be that sacrifice, that lamb. And what God is doing here is he's instituting a very symbolic um, thing that they did, a very symbolic celebration, if in fact, that shows that he will pass over if he sees the... Blood. Now, if you're an Israelite and you did everything but put the blood on the doorpost, guess what? It didn't work. You had to do it. And, and this is the other thing we don't like. We like saying, well, you know, God will take it. You know, God will take me the way I want to come to him. No, it doesn't work that way. God defines the parameters. You want to come to God, here's the parameters. And if you don't take them, you don't come to God. That's one of the problems we have today. We have people thinking, well, you know, um, God will accept me just the way I am. You know, if I'm sincere and all that, he'll, he'll let me in. No, he won't. And what's so amazing is that he made it so easy. I mean, he did everything but walk us through the door. Yeah. 
But he said, you do it my way. See, we have offended God. He's the one that gets to define the terms by which we are reconciled to him. We don't get to define those terms. If I do something very evil against you, I don't come up and say, well, you know, here's ten bucks, we'll just forget about it. I don't have a right to define how that relationship is restored. That's your right, isn't it? You have to define that. We have offended a holy God. He has a right to say, here's, the, here's how you come back. Now, by grace, he provided a way back, didn't he? He didn't have to do that even, but he did. But you do it his way, or you don't get there. And see, that's what Aaron's sons, the first two, his first two sons, they figure, well, we'll just do it this way. No, you don't do it that way. And God just killed them. Uzzah decided, well, I'll just study the ark. No, you don't touch the ark. God struck him dead. And every once in a while, God does that just to get across to us that, you know, approaching me is a serious business. You just go waltzing into my presence thinking that somehow you're doing me a favor by showing up. You're not. You come God's way. And God provides this Passover as a depiction of what it takes to come to him. To pass, to, for his wrath to pass over. Okay? And let's look at some of the similarities here. Well, the Passover lamb had to be without what? Blemish. Couldn't be sick. Couldn't have sores on it. Couldn't have a broken leg. It had to be the best. And Christ was sacrificed for us as 1 Peter 1.18 says is what? A lamb without blemish and without spot. In fact, let's look that up. That's a very important verse. 1.18 and 19. Somebody has, somebody has that read it. 1 Peter 1, 18, 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom you paid was not merely gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It's hard to debate. I mean, you don't even need a degree in hermeneutics to figure that one out. Christ was the Lamb of God. And he was the unblemished Lamb of God. Why is it that Christ walked among us for three and a half, four years? What happened in those three and a half to four years? His ministry, but what else? Yeah, and the thing, the most fastidious religious muckety-mucks on the planet tried to do everything they could to find one little blemish in them, and what happened? They failed. At the end, what they had to do is... Uh, come up with two false witnesses. And even they couldn't get their story straight. You understand how many laws were violated to put Christ on the cross? It's amazing. You do a study of that, you find that, that the, the Jewish leaders railroaded Christ onto that cross and they broke every single one of their laws to do it. That was a kangaroo court. And Pilate on multiple occasions says, I find no fault. In fact, it's interesting God went to a great deal of trouble to get across the idea, the, the, the understanding, that Christ had no fault. There was nothing that they could pin on him. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. And it even says, as a lamb before her shears is dumb, Christ didn't open his mouth. Another picture. He was without blemish. Um, the Passover lamb was observed for three days to ensure his perfection. Christ was observed for three years. 
And you believe me, I'll tell you what, those Pharisees, they did everything possible to try and find something they could nail on him. Now, there's a question. How far would people have to dig to nail you? Never yeah, it wouldn't take them long, right? Wouldn't take them long. This is interesting. Christ's moment, you had the national Passover. And in fact, it's interesting as you study this Passover, there were two observances of Passover in the Bible. Because one of the things that people have problems with is, okay, Christ observed the final Passover with his disciples, then how could he observe the final Passover and yet be the Passover lamb? Right? Well, if you study it, you find that there were two designated times for Passovers in Israel. One was the previous evening of the Passover for anybody outside of Israel, Galileans, whatever. And then they had another Passover for all the in-Jerusalem people the next day. There were two Passover observances. So Christ was able to observe the Passover with his disciples and remember what he said when he picked up the bread. This is my body which is broken. This is the blood which is spilled. When you partake of communion, in essence, you're partaking of this extension of the Passover. Okay, we don't go and we don't kill a lamb. We don't put blood on our doorposts. But when you take that communion, you're signifying the death of Christ. It's a very serious thing. It's interesting to me when, when we have communion here, how many people are looking around and this is a serious thing. Don't, don't look around. Sit there and ponder what Christ did for you when you partake of that. It's a very serious song. In fact, Paul says if you take of it wrong, what happens? Some of you might die. It's that serious. Don't, don't, don't turn this into something mundane. It's a very serious thing. And, what happened is that as Christ died at 3 a.m., this is interesting, Christ died at 3 a.m. on Friday. And that's the exact, 3 p.m., excuse me, p.m. in the afternoon. He died at 3 p.m. on Friday, and that is the exact time that in the temple, this priest was sacrificing the Passover lamb at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And what happened as the priest sacrificed the Passover lamb? Now, that would really freak you out if you were a priest. When you're there and you sacrifice a Passover lamb, you have this large rip and you turn around and the temple curtain is torn all the way into the Holy of Holies. Your heart skips a few beats thinking, I'm dead. But see the imagery? The way is open now. And you'll remind us of the dimension. What what was it was it was it was really thick. This it was not something you go up and you rip a little curtain. This thing required a couple of burly angels to probably do it. But it was it was a thick curtain because it was it separated Israel from the presence of God. And that thing was ripped from top all the way down to the bottom. And Christ is signify or God is signifying the way is open. The the, the veil is torn. Christ entered, remember in Hebrews, the imagery, Christ entered into the veil, behind the veil, taking his own blood. John the Baptist calls Christ the Lamb of God and takes away the sin of the world. Pretty obvious there, right? Now, if you're an Israelite and you're told that this is the Lamb of God, what are you going to think of? Passover. That's what you're going to think of. 
The bulk of Hebrews 9 and 10 picture Christ as the final sacrifice for all time. Just read those chapters. By one offering, he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. It's not by the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, he purchased redemption, eternal redemption for us. That's the amazing thing. See, the Passover is a picture. And one of the things that the Hebrew writer is doing is he's saying, you know, how do you know that those Old Testament sacrifices didn't take away sin? What's the proof that the Old Testament sacrifice didn't take away sin? You have to keep doing it again and again and again. If they were, ever, if they were able to take away sin, you wouldn't have to keep on going back next year with another Day of Atonement. But the difference is when Christ offered one sacrifice for sin forever, he sat down. Now that's something the priests didn't do. They did not sit down in the temple. There were no pews in the temple. Nobody sat down. It was standing day in, day out. The work was never done. Christ completed the work. <coughs> yeah, Israel is still observing Passover, but it's a meaningless ritual. Right. It's a meaningless ritual. John in Revelation 5, 6 pictures Christ as the Lamb as though it had been slain. Remember when he has, somebody has the book, who's worthy to open the book, and he sees Christ as a lamb having been slain. It's over. The sacrifice is over. There's no more sacrifice for sin. Christ is, you don't, we don't go and we don't offer sacrifices to cover our sin. Your sin right now it's forgiven past, present, and future. It's done. My sin is forgiven past, present, and future. I will never stand before God and God says, you know, you forgot to confess this one sin back here. It's, it's covered. It's gone. What I do do is the relationship now, right? It's not, when I sin, it's not that I have a sin that's not forgiven, because it is forgiven, but... To restore my relationship with God, I need to ask his forgiveness to apply the blood that's already been paid on my behalf. It's not that Christ is re-sacrificing himself. That's the heresy of the Catholic Mass, where, where every time they, the priest does his whatever he does, you're re-sacrificing Christ all over again. No, you're not. One sacrifice for sin, forever finished. Are you talking about the Catholic Communion? Catholic Communion, the Mass. Forgiveness. Because they have this whole thing where you, know, you have to go to the priest and, and... That's all sacerdotalism. That's bad news. <laughs> sacerdotalism? That, 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 sacerdotalism is... is I, uh, I maintain my relationship to God by rituals. That's, that's what it's rituals. You know, doing this and doing whatever, kneeling and Hail Marys and whatever else. That, that's, all, that's all ritual. What I have right now, my sin is forgiven by the blood of Christ, past, present, future. Period. I will never stand before God and give an account of my sin. I'll give an account of how well I did what the talents, and I'll receive a reward. But God's not going to say, you know, we've got some sin here we need to deal with. We'll give you a few billion years of purgatory and sort of burn it off you. That's the Catholic idea doesn't work that way. My sin's forgiven because Christ's sacrifice is a once for all, never to be repeated sacrifice. I, I, 
don't know is your question about what our work isn't done yet is a reference to we are to ever be growing. Yes. And, and that's where the first Corinthians three, nine through fifteen. Yes. I am, to, I am to, and, and first John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. On what basis? Well, Christ has paid it all. That's the thing. I love that, that hymn. Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay some of it. He didn't give a down payment. He paid the whole debt. And Yeah, when you grasp the fact that God has forgiven you for all your sin, you don't want to sin. Doesn't mean you're not going to do that. I, we, we all have that, but that's not going to be a conscious um, direction of your life. You're going to fall into sin. We're going to fall into sin. We live in a fallen world. And when we sin, what happens? We are convicted. We ask God forgiveness. But, the, but you know, the, the, the wonder of it is, is the, the, as I've looked at my own spiritual life, the more I consciously understand my forgiveness and understand the wonder of God reaching down and saving me, it makes me less desirous to sin. I'm not going to want to do it. Because how could I do something against someone who loves me like that? How could I... How can I bring sadness to his heart? I, I, the more you, you know, it's just like in human terms. The more you love somebody, the more you want to please them. It goes you know. Yeah, and, and if somebody comes along and says, "Well, it doesn't matter if I sin, because God will forgive me anyway." They have a very deficient understanding of what the forgiveness is, and they might not even be a Christian. They might not even be a believer. You know, I, I worry about that. I've known some people say, "Well, you know, it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven." You better, you better check whether you're forgiven in the first place, because if you're going to presume on God's forgiveness, that shows that you have a deficient understanding of what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, you say you're a Christian, let's see it. You say you're a believer, let's, let me see it. Dead. And, and here's the thing. The God, I believe this. The God that saves you transforms you. He makes you different. It's not you. It's God in you. All right? It's not you deciding, well, I'm going to not sin today. It's God's Holy Spirit working within you that enables you, as you mature in your Christian life, to sin, hopefully, less and less. To be more and more like God. And And to me... You know, the, the, the thing that really hit me a few years ago is that if I really love God, a lot of the rule book stuff that I used to do takes care of itself. I don't need it because I love God. I'm not going to do things that dishonor him. And things that I used to think were okay now really bother me. You know, and it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit in me as I grow. Yes. Struggled with the issue of not doing the things we needed to do, and uh, that he wanted to do, but you know, because we all have that nature to sin. And he said, you know, should should we go on sinning so that grace should abound that much more? God forbid. Yeah, of horrors. 
that's you know Romans. Um, you know, we're I, in church devotionals. We're reading through Romans, um, and uh, it says there, like you said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The whole thinking there. Well, if I sin, God looks good because He forgives me. So if I'm going to make God really look good, I'll really sin good. To make God really look good. Paul is saying, God forbid. May it never be. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that paid the price that you deserve to pay. Look at this. The Israelites were to take the blood of the Passover Lamb, put on the doorposts and lentils using hyssop. And what happened at the cross? The soldiers took hyssop and put vinegar and gave it to Christ to drink. A picture of the sacrifice on the cross. The blood of the Passover lamb caused God to pass over the homes of the Israelites. Christ's blood causes God's wrath to pass over us. God's wrath that falling out against sinners when he sees the blood of Christ in our lives, his wrath passes over us. Why? Because somebody else took the wrath for us. Not a bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. And Christ's bones were not broken. Remember when they came to um, the... And what they did in those days is they wanted to get you down off the cross in a hurry to die. They would break your leg bones so you couldn't breathe and you'd suffocate. When they came to Christ, he was already dead. They didn't need to break his bones. It may not be. I might. Pass over the believers. I don't know. Yeah, I think that that carries the idea. His one offering causes God's wrath to pass over us. Um. Oh, yeah. Okay, also there in Psalm 3420, there's one too. There's two of them. Not a bone will be broken. Yep. Here's a, so that, that's one of the richest probably types that we see. Another type is the bronze serpent. If you remember the story of the bronze serpent, uh, Israelites, uh, they, had a, they had a propensity to gripe and complain a lot. Every time you turn around, they were complaining about something. And in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, they didn't like God's provision for them. They griped and grumbled and complained. And God said, okay, so he sent these fiery serpents among them, these snakes, these adders that were very poisonous. And when it would bite the Israelites, they would die. It was a very poisonous snake. And, of course, Moses intercedes, and what does God tell him to do to stop the plague? Well, create a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And anyone who looks at that pole, that serpent on the pole, will be healed. All right? Now, how big was the camp then? It was several hundred thousand people, probably in size. Some say, you know, if you're standing in the back of the line, you may not hardly be able to see it. But what did you have to do to live? Look. Remember, there's a, there's a hymn, Look and Live. There's an old hymn. All you had to do was look at this. Now, obviously, there were probably some stubborn Israelites that didn't, right? 
They died. But you look. Now, Christ brings this out in John chapter 3 when he talks about himself to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is talking, of course, to Nicodemus, trying to get across this truth about faith. And the picture of, of the Son of Man being lifted up, everybody back then would know what that's talking about. Being lifted up refers to crucifixion. That was the, that was the, the way the Romans executed criminals. And Christ is saying, I have to be lifted up that whosoever looks on me and believes will have everlasting life. Now, God, Christ does not go into what does it mean to believe. All right? We're going to get into that. There is a content to our faith. Um, some people say, well, I believe in God. That's good enough. What do you believe in? I don't know. I just believe in God. Well, no. God's given you some things that you need to believe. Who Jesus is. What did he do? Why did he come? Your sin. That's, that's, those are all parts of that. But the point that Christ is making is how is it that you are saved from your sin problem? You have to look at Christ and believe. That's a wonderful thing, you know. You don't have to do anything. And, and, and that's, the, that's the wonder of salvation. God did not create a salvation. You have to work at it. Because there's always going to be someone that can't do it, right? God says, if you can memorize these hundred things, you're saved. Well, what if you can't memorize them? Or he says, if you give me X amount of percentage of your income, you're saved. Well, what if you can't? He didn't design it that way. He said, believe. I have to do is believe. Have faith in me. And the picture of the bronze serpent is to look at Christ and believe in what he did for you. That's what it means. And by the way, faith, we, we, we sometimes overcomplicate faith. All faith in God is, is just taking God at his word. Whatever God says, go with it. That's what faith is. If God says it, I believe it. I don't question it. I go with what he says. That's all God wants. God really, you know, the whole idea of believing, God wants us to look at him and say, I trust you. I believe you. That's what it is. That's what faith is. Believing what God said and, and acting on it. That's, that's James. You say you have faith? Well, let me see your works, right? You say you have faith? I have faith. Show me your faith by your works. How did we know Abraham had faith? He did something. Hebrews 11. How do we know that Abel had faith? He did something. How do you know Noah had faith? He built an ark. How do you know Moses had faith? Well, he left Egypt. Faith always produces a response because you believe God, you do what he says, and you go, go with it. And Christ is saying, as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must I be lifted up. That if you look at me, you can be saved from your sin. You can be saved from death. Quickly, a couple more. Adam and Christ, I don't have time to to really go into this. Um, the devotions this week have go through Romans chapter 5. But basically the idea there is that we have a first Adam and a second Adam. And every one of us in here, every human being that has ever lived, is identified with one of two Adams. You're identified with the first Adam by virtue of your being born. 
all of us are identified with Adam number one. But we are identified with the second Adam by virtue of being born again. And what God does is God takes our identification from old Adam and transfers it to the new Adam. And we become identified with Christ as our second Adam. The first Adam, what did he do? He failed in the garden. The second Adam succeeded in the wilderness. In Romans chapter 5, the first Adam, his one sin brought death to all men. The second Adam, his one sacrifice brings salvation to all. For as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all that sin, even so by one man the free gift comes. And we see that. Federal headship means that the federal headship viewer, we talk about federal headship when it comes to sin, means that we all are identified with Adam and his rebellion. Adam, yeah, when Adam sinned, it's as though all of us did it. He was our, he was our federal representative. And you say, well, I wouldn't have sinned. Yeah, you would have. You sinned. And if you want to think, well, that's unfair. It's not fair that because Adam sinned that I get blamed for that. Well, then it's not fair that because Christ lived the perfect life, you get credit for that. You want to play that game. All right. And the, the message of Romans 5 is that Adam, there's two Adams, the old and the new. Which one are you identified with? Who is your federal head? Is it Christ or is it the old Adam? Um, and then finally, Melchizedek. We talked about him already. We don't need to really go into that much further. Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and it, and it talks about Christ's priesthood being an eternal priesthood, an unchanging priesthood, a priesthood that supersedes that of Aaron because it came first. And God never did away with the Melchizedek priesthood. It's still a valid priesthood, even though you have the Aaronic priesthood there as well. But the Aaronic priesthood had a built-in expiration date. What was that? When Christ's sacrifice was made. The rituals are no longer needed. You have the reality. Okay, well next week we'll look at the second coming and then we'll start the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had today to study your word. I pray that you would help us to ponder these rich, rich, rich truths. Thank you for sending your Son to become our Lamb, our sacrifice, taking our place. And help us not to forget, Father, that it is a bloody thing. We like to be horrified by it, and we should be, Father, but it's a picture of the heinousness and awfulness of our sin that requires a blood sacrifice. Thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to study this wondrous truth. In Christ's name, amen.